All right, so You're dating yourself, I oh well, <laughs> I know we just you know at this point we just cut my leg open and count the rings to see how old I am. So thank you for joining. Uh, I'm Dave Wright. You are you, and this is the IoT Mosh Pit. And you've probably heard Kevin on uh, on these before. So Kevin is actually going to run today's Mosh Pit. So he's got some special guests today. So that'll be you'll hear more about that in a minute. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, we're it's, uh, we talk about Kaiser, IoT at Kaiser. Uh, we're creating a venue of collaboration. And we kind of look at things that are going on in the industry, not only at Kaiser, but also in the industry, and kind of discuss them on the mosh pit. So one of the things that we did... So Kevin, are you ready? Yeah. You ready? Okay. So Kevin and I went to a thing called the Sensor Expo in San Jose, right? Mm -hmm. And like, did anybody watch like, um, Silicon Valley? Have you guys watched Silicon Valley? You don't watch on HBO? No? Okay. Show. Yeah. Yeah. Different question. Um, yeah. So we. Uh, so it was literally like going down to, to something you'd see at Silicon Valley. There's like tables and rows and rows and rows of of just every kind of sensor and gadget you can possibly imagine. And I had uh, had a couple of the guys I work with. Um, I, Chris, if he's on, I don't know if Chris, Chris is usually on. A couple others. They uh, they gave me a list of things they wanted me <laughs> things. I didn't plan that one. <laughs> they gave me a list of things they wanted me to go find uh, at the Sensor uh, Expo, and we found them. So I've got a big bag full of business cards and tiny little trinkets and, and sensors. We'll see if we can make something interesting out of that. But Kevin, what? Um, so we got there pretty early, right? It was uh, And it filled up. It was like nobody there when we got there. Yeah, it was interesting because you know this was just like a month or so after IoT World in Santa Clara. And that was a really, really big event. It was extremely crowded. You know, lots of hype around it, and then we show up at the Sensor Expo, and it's much smaller. Like, you know, there was one person in line in front of us. You know, I had to fumble to try to get the QR code up for my email, and I couldn't do it in time. I had to give him my name because there was no line. Yeah, and I thought that was pretty. I mean, it's got to be tough, you know, running an event called the Sensor IO2 World or, or or Sensor Expo when they they give you a QR code. And the QR code thing doesn't work, right? Like, like you, you put your QR code in the QR reader and you expect it to spit your badge out. Like, you shit out all your information, but they're still like, what's your name? Put your name into the end of this. And I'm like, really? What's the QR code for then? I don't, you know. it's, it's like, you know, you think of all places they'd have that place. Oh, they're still checking your badge as you walk in the door, right? Like, they have a guy, like, flipping your badge over and hitting a person counter. I'm like, really? You have a room full of stuff that will do that. <laughs> Literally. Yeah, it was really interesting, though, because, you know, coming from IoT world, everybody's talking about their product or service or, you know, fancy platform they put together. And this one was a lot different because everyone's just working with the actual components themselves. It was the pure technology that's underway and what they're developing. And, you know, what we're seeing at the Sensor Expo... So, it wasn't, so it wasn't devices. It was like... like like the thing with wires sticking out of it, right? Yeah, there's, it's, it's yeah, circuits components. and electronics yeah. components, but these are the things that you know these companies are going to be selling to these larger brand names that then turn it into a product or service that we would see at IoT World, you know, the next go round. So it's kind of cool because we we kind of get to peek around the bend of, of what the actual technology is and then where it's headed. Yeah, we saw. You know, one of the things that we were looking for, we had a couple of people ask us for about blood lactate um, sensors, and I guess the the ones they have now are like sticks that you bleed on, mm -hmm. kind of gross, right? So they're trying to figure out how do we get like it through sweat or something. Surprising, we found them like right away. We walked like, in the door. There they were. First five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, okay, well, that problem solved. Check that one off the list. What were some of the other things you saw there? Yeah, so there's one that was really interesting. It, it was a film material. It, it kind of looks like, it's about the size of your trackpad on your laptop. And what it does is it uses light and it augments some of the functionality of what you'd see in an x-ray. 
So what was kind of cool about this is, you know, with this kind of film, you could do some of what you need to do with an x-ray, except just using light. So you wouldn't get that radiation exposure that's kind of concerning with how we use x-rays today. Oh, wow. Does it have to be a really bright light, or is it ambient light, or how does well, that work? So they had ambient light, and the demo was actually, it, you just put your finger on it, and you would get your fingerprint really detailed. Oh, that was the ambient light one, right? That was ambient light. Okay. But then they also talked about how you could put your hand on that type of surface, and then have like more of a concentrated, you know, amplified light over yeah. top, and it would actually be able to see through, and kind of, you could see your veins in your hand, or dial it further, and see the bones. Just really interesting because it's not an X-ray, but it's augmenting some of that functionality for seeing. Can you, you know, see like light. that little sensor that the aliens put in the back of your neck when you get <laughs> abducted? Can you see that in there? Um, <laughs> cool. And you know what? They also had a lot of thermal. I noticed uh, not thermal, but uh, energy harvesting technologies. Yeah, that, that seems to be a big thing coming up now, big. right? So I watched there. They had a, a thing that was like trying to um, charge a microcontroller with a radio frequency wave. That was kind of interesting. Um, like wireless power, so it, it's coming, it's coming. We're getting getting some capabilities there. Uh, well, who do we got today, Kevin? Who's, uh, who's joining us today? Sure, yeah, so today I want to introduce a, a VP and principal uh, analyst at Forrester Research um, who focuses mm -hmm. on disruption and business impact of the Internet of Things, connected home, connected car, and digital self. So I'd like to welcome mm -hmm. Frank Gillette. Good uh, afternoon from Boston and good morning to you all on the West Coast. Good morning. Hey, and Frank. I, you know, I heard a couple interesting things about you. So, so we've had a couple uh -huh. calls before. Uh, <laughs> and so we heard that you have over 20 smart home devices on your home network. So what is all that? What yeah. do you have connected? <laughs> well, it's a combination of things that people give me to try out and things that I uh, buy. But, you know, some of it's not a surprise, right? Thermostat, smoke detectors. Um, there's uh, um, a Wi-Fi bathroom scale. Um, that um, reminds me that I gain weight on business trips. Um, <laughs> did you have the first? Did you have the first one of those? Did you have the very first one of those uh, Wi-Fi or connected bath scales? That well, the first one. It would tweet your weight, right? One. Yeah. Well, you could choose to do that. I oh, damn it! Really? That. You could turn that off? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, since I weigh in twice a day, that would be rather a lot in my tweet stream. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, the it was interesting. I, I treated it casually for a while, and then when I did start weighing in twice a day, that's when I noticed the, the rhythms and patterns, and actually it began to change my behavior, both in terms of the amount of activity and uh, the way I ate. Um, and so I've noticed, you know, I tend to click down a little bit of my weight if I go running, and I think it's more than just the water weight. There's something about the extra exertion. Um, I tend to click up uh, when I'm eating out, but especially on a, a business trip. Um, but paying attention to it on a daily basis um, for the last three and a half years reset my weight down about five percent. Wow, um, that's awesome! And sort of, yeah, it took me it took me out of the the flashing yellow zone into the into the you know you're almost in the right place. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and it's it's a minor weight change, but my doc said she thinks uh, it showed up in in the um, blood work you know that you get at your annual checkup. And I'm like, that's small a weight change, and she's like, yep. Interesting. Wow. Well, good for yeah, you. And so I, yeah, it was the Whittings bathroom scale, and the company just renamed itself Nokia because they were bought by the Nokia folks. Yeah. And I don't know if they were the first, but they were very early to it. Yeah, and so was, did that give you, you know, monitoring your weight like that, did it give you the inspiration to do that bike trip you did from Seattle all the way down to San Francisco on a mountain bike? 
Well, wait, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. So, so he's got twenty. Div- that's like twenty hackable. Thi- we'll get his address later. I'm pretty sure we can hack all those things. But I'm just because you know it's the internet of hackable mm. things. So you yeah, wrote a bike. Wait, let me get this straight. You wrote a bike from Seattle to San Francisco. Yeah, a mountain bike. Yes. A mountain bike, like the big was, chunky wheels. I was and still, I was, I was still young and foolish. It was, I was right before graduate school. I joined a group of of twelve people in a self-supported trip, man. We carrying everything on the bicycle. Um, and yeah, we took a month, which means it was really easy riding. So we averaged forty-five or fifty miles a day, six days a week, um, from Seattle to San Francisco. And I, you know, being a, a cheapskate recent college graduate, I'm like, so what one bicycle can I buy that will give me maximum fun? So I chose a mountain bike that could be rigged with panniers front and rear, um, and then I put some handlebar extensions on it so that you could, you know, tuck for the downhill runs, um, and uh, you know, have some alternate hand positions. And, Wait, so, uh, so yeah, during all of this, funny. during all yeah. this, did you have any kind of wearable or tracker on you? Because you know, in today's t- uh, terms, if you don't have that kind of data stored somewhere <laughs> that you did that trip, it didn't happen at all. Right? I know, right? We need the, we need the <laughs> GPS route, right? <laughs> well, let's just say that it was not only pre-iPhone, but it was pre-sensor um, era. So no Strava, Although, no Strava app. <laughs> Actually, no, that's not completely true because there was – no, there was no Strava app. This is – you know, this was pre-Blackberry. I mean, let's really date myself. But um, you could buy these crude, simple sensor ones that I did have mounted on the bike. And so you had a tiny – basically, it was old-school electronics because it was a, a tiny digital LCD display with a wire down to the sensor on the front wheel, and it just counted wheel spins. And so you had a you 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 did get feedback on speed and distance, and that was how I determined, for example, that you know that I was grinding along. I mean, turns out when you have extra weight on the bike, it doesn't affect your top speed; it just accelerates. It affects the amount of effort it takes to accelerate to top speed, because the wind resistance of the the panniers on the bag don't make that big a difference, um, unless there's real wind, uh, headwind. And so what I figured out is that, you know, I was cruising along at 14 miles an hour and having a great time, and I could do that. I could cruise that way all day. And that's not a, fan, a fast speed. You know, the road bikers are going to sneer down their nose at me. Um, the touring people will recognize you don't tour like a road bike speed. But still, I kept up with all the other people in my um, in my group, so it, it wasn't a problem. I had a great time. And that meant I had um, a little bit of flexibility. Well, I was running skinny tires for the, for that trip. Honestly, I didn't run the big fat mountain bike, squishy tires. So what's interesting about that is, you know, that, that was back, you know, a couple decades ago. And that's really interesting because, you know, even then we had sensors that were connected and collected data and we were learning from that information. We had all these variables such as the tire size and and speed and all that. And, you know, we used that to inform and, you know, be able to learn from that and, and to correct. And so what's interesting is, you know, that's, that's, you know, obviously not related to healthcare. It's, you know, sports, but mm-hmm. what, what's interesting is, you know, as we go around to these different conferences and, and events and talk to different folks, everyone always, you know, wants to bring to us their healthcare specific IOT capabilities and products and services. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's for us, those aren't really innovative because, you know, they've already been done. It's already been productized. It's already something that, you know, any other healthcare organization go out and buy. So, you know, where we're really interested in looking at is where is IoT developing in other industries and mm-hmm. how can we look at some of those and repurpose them for the healthcare industry to address a market gap that we have? Uh, so yep. could you talk a little bit about, you know, some of those things that you see outside of healthcare that's developing in IoT? Well, so uh, there's so many varied use cases and, and um, I want to 
get started on your question by sort of laying some basic ideas here. So um, IoT does three things that um, make that, that either automate or, or make things possible that weren't possible before. And everyone uh, skips over and forgets the first one, which is identity of the device. And of course, you can often infer from the identity of the device the associated identity of a person um, if those two have been linked. But identity of a device is, is uh, in and of itself a value proposition. You know, simply being able to electronically or software query something and say, who are you, and get a useful answer is a huge start because it helps you identify a thing in the physical world. But turns out it's also a vital prerequisite to uh, security. Because if, if the device that's emitting the data um, or protecting the data can't identify itself in a unique, unchangeable, that is immutable way, then you don't have security and therefore you can't have confidence in the data or in uh, controlling the physical world. So the first one is, uh, is getting identity. Um, the second one is receiving status, right? Because these sensors um, now connected to the software and digital world, unlike my old bike sensor, which just showed it on the display and couldn't go anywhere. Um, that ability to receive status from the real world automatically into the digital and software world is huge. Um, and then the third one is control action. That is to have software control action back in the in the physical world. In effect, remote control uh, via software or, from digital. Um, so uh, I'll talk in a minute about sort of some of the business patterns. But now when we translate that into what are the other use cases that healthcare might take advantage of, one um, that I think gets some attention in healthcare but not enough is the whole notion of preventive maintenance. Because um, huh. all the all the equipment that you guys use, um, you know, it can be sensitive. It's complicated. It it can wear out. Uh, it has um, perhaps re replenishable, consumable things, um, and so uh, the the manufacturer should be uh, helping the, the provider, uh, you all, keep track of these machines and effectively identify um, trends that suggest, say, a needed repair or a problem. Um, yeah, and it's, it's interesting and so you bring that up because when it comes to different mm. medical devices, especially, you know, the really expensive ones used in a clinical setting, yeah. you know, they also have regulations tied to them for, you know, being certified yeah. for continued use. So that would mm. be interesting, you know, if a predictive, you know, maintenance kind of model within, you know, a smart connected medical device could help you stay within regulation and, and not kind of forego Correct. this. Yeah, I mean, we're doing this for airplanes already, right? And, and yeah. farm equipment yeah. and machinery. Well, I mean, uh, so why wouldn't right. we bring... Yeah, I see it a lot in factories, um, and so there's a couple of levels here, but the first basic level is just because, um, look, the old way of maintenance is so many hours of operation um, or so many months. I mean, think, imagine, you know, if you have an older car or if you learned about cars a while ago, the, the manual would say change oil every 3,000, 5,000 miles, and, you know, as the oil and the engines got better, the, you know, it would stretch three, five, you know, maybe 7,500 miles. Um, but my 2008 car now has a sensor in it that, that measures the dirtiness of the oil. And so this is an early but not yet IoT-connected example because what it was doing is was, in effect, keeping track of all the variables, the time since last oil change because it does degrade with time, um, the, the number of hours of operation because if you um, – that matters, but even more so, how much time, how many short trips you take where the engine never gets a chance to warm up and where you get the oil gets dirtier and there's greater wear um, versus you get on the highway and cruise at a nice steady easy, easy 55,000 miles an hour, 55 miles an hour with the, um, you know, uh, cool temperatures, man, that's great. You can do that for, for thousands of miles and not need to change your oil. So the sensors and the system now keep track of all those variables and look at how dirty the oil is directly. 
uh, and then pop up a thing that says, hey, 10% oil life, time to go in and get changed. And so they, the, the, the guys now stick a, put a sticker in my car that it doesn't even say, you know, by this date or by whatever. It just says, whenever your car alerts you, bring it back to us. <laughs> and so when we translate that to medical devices, um, it means, say, tracking the number of IV bags that have gone through uh, a, an infusion pump or something, or um, the number of, of MRI cycles. But maybe let's imagine even further that the, the wear on the MRI matters not just say how many were done, but of what type. And, and I don't know if that's actually a factor, but that just as an example. But also what's even more interesting is it isn't just about saying, okay, now time for maintenance. It's about being able to interact between what the condition of the machine is in, because you're tracking what's it's called condition-based monitoring, matching that up against uh, business and medical need gee, we know we have a bunch of intensively st scheduled stuff next week, but we know the schedule's slack this week. Let's do the maintenance early. Or conversely, you know you're coming up against maintenance, but you've got a bunch of really important stuff to do, and you're willing to delay maintenance, even though it's going to increase expense a bit, because it'll actually work out from a revenue or care point of view that that's the right thing to do, despite the fact it will cost you more. And so as you dig deeper into this, it's not just having the sensor data, but combining it with all the other context to make the right medical and business decisions um, given the circumstances. Does that so, make sense? Yeah, and so on that point, do you think, you know, kind of relating back to the car example you use, you know, traditionally the, the manual would say, you know, replace the oil every 3,000 miles. And let's say, you know, in a healthcare setting, that wouldn't be a suggestion, that would be a mandate. It would be, this regulation says right. you have to change the oil every 3,000 miles in order to deliver effective care. But, you know, hmm. if as, as these medical devices become more and more connected and more able to sense their actual use and and uh, maintenance needs, do you do you see that, you know, regulations may start to flex a little more and be more, you know, respected to how the device is actually used rather than like a blanket statement? Yeah. Well, so so I was just, as you were saying that, I was just thinking like, hmm. you know, your trip from you rode your bike from. Seattle to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know a lot of mm -hmm. bicyclists, and I know that they only have so many pedals in their knees, right? They got so many. <laughs> there's only so many cycles your knees can make, right, before they, they wear mm -hmm. out. And as we start to have prosthetics and replace hips and knees, those are mechanical things that I would guess that would have to be monitored very similar to other industrial mechanical things would need to be monitored for wear and tear mm. and maintenance. So yeah, I guess the rules would have to change a little bit, right? You're like, well, wait a minute, I, you know? <laughs> yes. There's certainly, there will be the opportunity. I'm not a policy regulatory expert, but I, um, it, what hopefully you will see is regulations move from um, uh, being built around assumptions of technology or uh, uh, circumstance to outcomes-oriented regulation that says, you know, uh, and, and, and it's tricky because, you know, in a sense, regulation is, is attempting, not always successfully, to enforce common sense that some people want to bypass. Um, and so uh, the regulators will have the opportunity to figure out how to adapt given that they now have more information. You know, For example, should I allow someone to, to run a, a piece of equipment past its sort of standard usage pattern before maintenance because in fact you know, they've got an emergency patient? You know, can I automatically issue them a, a waiver for example, um, because of the, uh, you know, they declare an emergency and then we approve that and then, you know, review audit later just to make sure that nobody was like trying to trick us. Um, but it, the, I think the broader point here is as we get better information about what's happening in the physical and real world and, and record that digitally, then yes, there's the opportunity for medical practice and, and 
and policy and regulation to evolve and, and be rethought. Yeah, and that's, that's really interesting. And, you know, I'm thinking more, you know, as you're talking about preventative maintenance and these different devices, you know, we can really get down to the, to the super granular detail because these are manufactured, you know, devices that, you know, the, we have full control over. We can, you know, tap into every piece of information that they can offer. But then, you know, on the other end, in healthcare, we also have preventative maintenance of people. And, you know, people are becoming more and more mm -hmm. connected with the various, you know, sensors and wearables, you know, on the consumer side mm -hmm. as well as clinical side. But what's different mm -hmm. about that is, you know, people don't always want every piece of information they can offer up to be available to, you know, different no. organizations and, and bodies of, you know, other people. So can you talk a little bit all. more about this, you know, area of debate around privacy in the IoT space? Because I know yeah. that Forster has done some work on this before with the concepts of yeah. contextual privacy and personal identity yep. management. So can you talk a little yep. bit about that and you know how we can yeah. you know approach it? Sure. So one of the things that um, happens as both employees and uh, clients or patients use all this stuff is we're collecting an awful lot of information about uh, the behaviors um, and the status or state of individuals. Uh, and so one uh, introductory level here is, you know, you have to consciously think about designing something to say, decide that you're not actually going to record which employee took the action, but simply, you know, anonymize the information so that it's just not possible to determine, uh, say, the time that the, that the behavior took place or the individual or whatever it was. So there's a, there's a fundamental system design question. But if we step past that, um, you know, there's a question of um, uh, what new information you add to um, the EMR or EHR. I don't, um, I don't know which acronym to use these <laughs> days with, with it, the medical folks. But um, the uh, what, what you end up with is kind of a, a, a situation where, for example, a healthcare provider would say, hey, Frank, you know, you're weighing in at home. Um, that's a more accurate weight because you're telling me that you do it, you know, before you get dressed rather than, you know, when you take your socks off and get on and you got like, you know, several pounds of clothes and stuff in your pockets. Um, and uh, so can we just access that? And, and so that, what that gets into um, is basically can you peek into my world of data um, and then, you know, the, the, the question comes up always, well, what are you going to do with that? Who are you going to share it with? And it gets into all the standard HIPAA stuff, but it also gets into a realm um, that Forrester calls contextual privacy, which is if you are asking for access to new information in digital form about someone, that um, you have to be transparent and communicative about, well, what benefit, what, what, what do you get in return? Um, and further, what are your rights in terms of, cutting off future access, and even deleting things out of our system, right? So right now, often the ground rules aren't agreed upon. And what we argue in, in this uh, set of ideas called contextual privacy is that you need to be able to um, be clear with the, the employee or the, the patient what the benefit for them is in sharing uh, the information or agreeing to, to be recorded, um, and then what rights they have to go in and remove old data 
or stop uh, sharing going forward, even if uh, separate from the idea of removing the old data. In other words, you know, something kind of like the right to be forgotten. You know, can I can I cut off your access? So who's, who's um, so who so mm -hmm. who do you see building those? I mean, is that something that we as a healthcare provider would need to build into all of our applications? Is that those capabilities, or do you think that's what's going to happen, or uh, whose responsibility do you see that being? Yeah, it's 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 a behavior and a mindset that you implement. It's not okay. a technology you can go by. Okay. Um, and I, a colleague of mine, uh, based in the San Francisco area, Fatima Katablu, is our specialist in this. And um, basically, uh, what she writes about is is this whole pattern of gaining and keeping trust in terms of deciding when and how to request information um, from you know let's call them all customers, um, and then because. Uh, there's a pattern that she's noticed, which is if you ask people about privacy, yes, privacy is really important, security is really important, and then you say free T-shirt, and like it all goes out the window, and people sign up. Um, but then, you know, when you do something that they didn't expect, well, now you've crossed the creepy line. It's like, what do you mean you're advising me on how to lose weight? And how did you know that I, you know, gain weight on business trips? Well, gee, Frank, remember, we, you let us look at your Withings bathroom scale and your calendar, and so we correlated the two information and realized, duh, <laughs> when you don't weigh in for several days, and we can look and see that you took flights and we're out of town, um, and, and then you come home and weigh in and you're up 2% on your weight, well, that's why we're trying to help you. But you know, after the fact, that's a pretty negative way to have the conversation. And um, I think for, for the uh, healthcare industry, you know, you're used to thinking about it in a very clinical context and thinking about information that you connect, collect, sorry, when they're in a clinical context. And what you're entering into now is a world where patients could volunteer information, including, say, blood pressure stuff. I, for a while, I had this Scanadu gadget. Have you guys heard of that? Mm -hmm. You've heard of it? Yeah. So the Scanadu was this interesting attempt to do a you know, simple medical scanner thing a la Star Trek. And I could stick it to my forehead, and it would, in one sort of fussy, difficult, imperfect scan, it would do blood pressure, pulse, um, blood oxygen content, and temperature. Um, and uh, they they recently shut off the device, so now I have this little black, white, white plastic puck that doesn't do anything. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I used, I wasn't sure how good is this blood pressure reading, and I showed it to my doctor and compared it to what they were getting off the cuff in the office, and they're like, yep, that's pretty good. And uh, it sure was simple, just sticking it on my forehead uh, for a few seconds and meditating and getting uh, a number that matched what uh, they were getting at the office. There's quite a bit of debates but, you about. Know, yeah, there's quite a bit of debates mm -hmm. about that, right? Like the, the doctors will say, "Well, you know, those are not um, industrial grade uh, devices, so it's not going to give you. It never going right. to give you an accurate thing. It's not calibrated." I mean, I've heard doctors talk about that. On the other hand, I've heard doctors say, "It's good enough." To build the trend, and what one thing it does do uh, is it prevents. The, I think they called it the white coat syndrome, right? So you go in to have your blood uh, pressure taken, and because you got somebody standing in a lab coat in front of you, you're you're already a little more anxious, and your blood pressure rises anyway. Exactly. And so I think that's called white. Somebody will correct. I'm sure I'll get an email on this one, <laughs> but, <laughs> so, but I think it's called white white coat syndrome. And uh, so so I've heard both sides of that story from from doctors. Well, I think if nothing else, what you get is is m many more frequent ones, right? If because yeah. as long as the things um, have a have a consistent error rate, then simply looking at sort of the variability among them, 
um, regardless of whether it's offset by a certain amount because it's not calibrated, um, just knowing, say, how variable somebody's blood pressure reading could be valuable, and you'll never get that from just doing it in the office because they don't come into the office frequently enough. So, um, and in this case, the particular device was actually in an FDA trial where they were trying to measure and manage all that stuff. And I think the reason they cut it off was, in fact, something to do associated with the end of the FDA trial. Mm. Um, so, uh, the point here is there's going to be increased opportunity to collect information from individuals that's relevant to um, guiding people for wellness and uh, illness and chronic care. Um, and so, working out how to um, take in information collected elsewhere with, a, with an understanding with the patient about how the information will be treated and what their rights are associated with it, which is different, of course, than information collected by a medical provider in the medical context, is going to be really important. And so this area that my colleague Fatima works on um, is, is going to be an area that practitioners at, at Kaiser are going to have to look into um, to not only figure the technology of, you know, so how do we co hook up to Withings API and slurp out Frank's weight data, um, but what are Frank's rights about removing that data from his medical record, uh, and what are we promising we will do to improve his health care if he agrees to let us do that? And, and so working out consistent policies, practices, and behaviors um, will, is going to be really important. Uh, and, and IoT simply opens up a whole bunch of new opportunities and uh, challenges because of the new forms of data and new sort of situations that, that you'll find yourself in. Yeah, and it's really interesting when you're describing, you know, this topic of contextual privacy, you know, it makes me think of, you know, my cell phone, you know, it, mm -hmm. traditionally, when you think of privacy, like the big leap forward was make it super granular, where, you know, mm. for an, for any given app you download from the store, instead of giving it all the rights it asks for, you can do it, you know, on a granular basis, you know, can we use your location? Can we use your microphone? Can we use your camera? But the problem with that is, you know, the granularity isn't the only thing that's needed because sometimes, you know, I'll download an app and it'll just suddenly, you know, I'll go to press a button and ask, can I use your camera? And it doesn't give any context. You know, what are you mm -hmm. going to do with the camera to do yep. some function? Yeah, like it, there's no context. It just says, can we have it or we cannot have it? So I, I yep. think what you're describing is, you know, beyond the granularity of, you know, accessing your blood pressure cuff versus your weight scale, there needs to be that upfront mm -hmm. information of, we want to access your weight scale because this information will help us provide this back to you. Yeah. Yep. Well, you, and you can imagine the confusion if some if 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 the Kaiser app pops up and says, "Hey, can I look at your calendar?" And be like, "What the blankety blank for?" And it's <laughs> like, "Oh, because we want to correlate, uh, you know, what we can see in your calendar with what else is happening." I mean, I've, I um. I can't remember the source of this, but I remember... Or it's going to look to see uh, who you have a date with to see if you have a STD. Well, actually, it was, gonna, it was looking at your calendar to see if you felt more stressed on days when you had a meeting yeah. with your boss. Right, 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 right. You know, so the, the Spire is a device that measures your breathing. Um, and the thing would nag me and say, hey, Frank, you're tense. And I'm like, what? Uh, you know, well, damn it, now I am. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> So, so the, you know, the spire, if, if you took the, the spire breathing information or the heart rate information off my Apple Watch and crossed that with my calendar, and if, and, if, and if the artificial intelligence software behind all this knew my reporting structure, you know, they could say, hey, Frank, you know, in the, in the hour before and after you talk to your boss, man, your blood pressure goes bonkers and your heart rate's up. What's, what's with that? 
like would, maybe you need some uh, some some meditation classes, or you know maybe you need to be talking about changing your boss. Would you like a reference to say a counselor? <laughs> I mean, nice. pretty I that. pretty out there, isn't it? Uh, isn't no, it? I it's can see that happening it's, already. I know it, it's within the realm of possibility. Oh yeah, oh yeah, um, and. And it, and it, but it comes from combining what I call this footprint of digital information or the digital self, things in my calendar, my, you know, knowing, being able to look up in my contacts and go, oh, Frank's manager, um, you know, uh, and then cross that with this real world sensor data about whether it's breathing or heart rate or pulse, um, you know, um, blood pressure, uh, you know, business trips, uh, weight from sensors, things like that. Uh, I guess pretty interesting. Yeah, it does. That is, that is pretty interesting. Yeah, so we're, we're coming up pretty close on Q&A time. So anybody on the call, mm. please feel free to enter any questions in the chat. Um, but while we're waiting for that, we have one more question we want to ask. And this is something mm. we've asked everybody else on, on the call. Um, if you could put anything you want on a billboard on Highway 280 or Sand Hill in the center of Silicon Valley, what would it be? What would be your, your concise quote you would put on the billboard? Take your time and think mm. about it, because we've had some really so good answers. Okay. A question or a statement? Could be either. Whatever you want. Something mm. something to make right. the impact so, you so want for that group. Some, some uh, wow. I, I don't know. <laughs> so one impulse is is a really simple one um, that I don't, to me is sort of boring and eat your broccoli kind of thing, but it's like, it's like get a password manager, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> because um, it, we're still making it so easy for people to hack things. And, you know, every one of these devices comes with a user account or some way of accessing it. And um, it, people are still using dopey passwords like password or one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, <laughs> you need to be using long, complex passwords. Um, they need to be relatively unique, particularly for any vital account, like say your medical information. Um, and it needs to be really easy for you to use or you're not gonna do it. Um, and you know, most of the schemes that people are doing involve reusing one easy to remember password, which is deadly. Um, which password so, uh, app do you recommend or use? So there's, there's a bunch out there, but it boils down to two um, in at least in my North American perspective, and, and sometimes people mention a third one. Um, there's one called Numeral One Password, and that one is um, sort of designed kind of Apple first. It works great on Windows and Android, um, but they've really sort of deeply ingrained themselves in the Apple ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is LastPass. Oh, by the way, the first guys are Canadian, if you care about whether your company is domiciled in the United States <laughs> or not. Um, the second one is LastPass in the Northern Virginia suburbs, yep. which for the paranoid, might, they might be too worried about being too close to the seat of power there yeah. and its associated government institutions. Um, but the LastPass guys, um, I think have gotten uh, really good now at using addressing the Apple world as well, but their roots, they started out doing things really well in the Windows world. Yeah. And then the third one that gets mentioned some is uh, Dashlane. Um, and the, uh, I don't know as much about that one, but basically what I find where this is going is the really cool way that you can now um, uh, 
effectively pay for it as a service and share among people. So one of the best design features I see now is this ability to, um, you know, share a certain set of passwords with my wife. So if one of us changes it, we both immediately have it available. Um, oh. share, share a certain subset with each child, and then there's the set of passwords that everyone in the family shares. Um, and so um, uh, by doing that, um, you just simplify things so much. I mean, my wife can't keep track of all that stuff, but if she knows that she can just fingerprint into her phone, fingerprint into the password manager, and look up what she needs, um, it just reduces a lot of duplication and complication. Um, yeah. So I think it's not only use a password manager, but get one of the, the you know, the family slash work group versions. And when you actually look at the math, it's a buck a month per person. So let, let's be it's honest. Not the, expensive. The the main way people would use that is to piggyback other people's Netflix accounts, right? <laughs> oh, well, and Hulu, um, right? I, my daughter, yeah, I think uh, she she does both Hulu well, and Netflix. And, you know, I'm I'm sure that there be some inappropriate use uh, for it. Um, but there's an awful lot of benefit to it as well. And, you know, if that's what gets them to use a password manager, <laughs> That's a good one. That is a good one. Sorry. All right, we're writing that quote down. Yeah. <laughs> so we had a question come in. Um, so what are some of the interesting oh, yeah. things you've seen other healthcare companies doing with IoT? Um, let me just see. I mean... Ah, so there's a researcher uh, thing that's maybe relevant to some, particularly teaching hospitals, um, uh, research and teaching hospitals, which is um, you have uh, companies supplying uh, specialized, um, uh, I'm not going to get this right, but basically specialized formulas or preparations of materials stored in a freezer cabinet. And they used to do it in the old-fashioned way. You know, they would come store things in there, and then they'd walk in once a week with a clipboard and review things. And what what the company supplying this did was create a, a in effect, a smart supplies freezer or refrigerator. I think it was a refrigerator that automatically tracked who took stuff out uh, at, at what time, and so they were able to track usage and automatically replenish. So it simplified billing <laughs> and it re reduced stockouts um, and just gave everybody a better experience. So, you know, um, the whole thing became um, much more uh, efficiently managed for these uh, researchers, and you can imagine uh, a similar thing being useful in uh, a lab, um, you know, conventional lab experience um, in healthcare providers. And then you see variations of this um, around uh, secure and regulated pharmaceuticals. So, um, and those and those and those regulations, uh, I heard some of them changed this year uh, in the pharmaceutical regulations. I know where I'm dealing with it. So, some of our listeners, I, I just got to stop you on that one for a second because some of our some of our regular listeners probably know about this already. But we're standing here staring as you're as you're talking about this refrigerator. We're kind of smiling because we have a um, a vaccine sort of refrigerator that we've built here that's got uh, iris scanners on it and BL, you know BLE and RFID and uh, just all kinds yep. of crazy IoT things on there temperature inside outside but the coolest yep. part of it is each of the vaccines um, and the all the actions are all recorded through blockchain so mm. so it's all blockchain so maybe uh, I'll get with you after this uh, after the session and show you a little video of what we uh, what we're create what we're cooking up sure. because it's uh, it's pretty neat it's got a lot of wires out of it but it looks pretty cool <laughs> but uh, but it's one of our you know use cases for blockchain so it's kind of nice yep yeah, and I mean, it's interesting. One of my colleagues, Martha Bennett in the UK, um, 
she sees the long-term potential for blockchain, but she also sees a lot of challenges. So just like we're telling uh, the finance people in, um, in that arena about blockchain, it's like, wow, the technology has reached a certain level of capability, but in terms of sort of working out the business mechanics and, and like making this practical and dealing with scaling challenges, there's still a lot of work to do um, to get there. So we're just, you know, definitely check it out, but also kind of be clear-eyed about uh, what the potential um, challenges and problems are and the fact that it'll take a while to evolve, which honestly, my other message uh, would about Internet of Things would be, um, you know, this is a long haul. It's not a simple hockey stick pop like smartphones or social media or something like that. It's actually quite a complex, diverse um, thing, and so don't let yourself get cynical or, or tired on this IoT thing, because it's, it's going to be a long, interesting, complex journey, not a simple uh, one-off um, uh, killer app. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That's, that's true. Because mm -hmm. you, you kind of feel like the hockey stick a little bit, because this year is such an explosion of IoT in your face, right? It's like, this is like eight years yep. ago with, you know, everything had to have the word cloud attached to it. Now it's, you know, IoT yep. is the new buzzword. Uh, we, we actually, <laughs> so we, well, we have a thing that we kind of say, you know, we, we think the jobs, you know, we have a couple titles here with IoT in the titles, and we think that those will, mm -hmm. in four years, be gone. Because, do you remember yeah. in the 80s or early 90s, people had titles like uh, the director of e-commerce, the director of e-marketing, the director of you know e-sales, mm -hmm. and, and those went away. Now you're just the director of sales or marketing, right? Yeah. So, so I kind of feel like yeah. the IoT moniker will, will disappear, dissolve in about four yeah. years. I'm skeptical of IoT in a title um, for very long. I agree with that. Yeah. Cool. So I, I had so one, one of the questions I see in chat. Did uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh no, I was just about to say that. Yeah, there's a couple that just came in. Uh, so if you can see but, those, uh, which one do you want to address? Well, the, the it looks like um, uh, one has been asked a couple of times about software updates or upgrades for mm. cars that have been you know out of the factory for several years, and I think this applies to basically any product. Um, you know, how updatable is the software? And I, I think we're going to see a range of things because I, I have to think there would be some perhaps lower cost or very high secure things where by definition we're going to make it really hard to update the software, um, you know, requiring, say, physical access because of the dangers involved um, if it's uh, not done properly. Um, so, uh, but setting aside those special cases, um, the, uh, you know, remember when I said there's three things you got to be able to do uh, or that IoT enables and the first one's identity? Well, one of the ways that you sort of manage and, do, and securely uh, do software updates and upgrades um, is if you have built device, uh, sorry, identity of, you know, into the device in the silicon at the factory. And this is actually one of the reasons that countries get very uptight about which country the silicon is manufactured in mm. um, because it's when that silicon is laid down that you actually build in the identity of the device uh, in that silicon. So um, uh, in terms of how software will be distributed and installed, um, in some cases I'm seeing devices such as those um, designed by a company called Electric Imp where the device accepts no inbound communications. So it only goes outbound to the pre-wired cloud destination of, of its maker. Uh, and so um, in order to try and manipulate that device, you have to intercept the outbound and successfully fake um, that you are the cloud that it's trying to hit. 
Um, and here and that's comes be, blockchain. That's a, <laughs> and, 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 and that's much harder to do. And blockchain is, is one way uh, to address that. You still have to have an address outbound, but the distributed nature of blockchain um, you know, certainly helps with some of that. But um, the uh, blockchain can provide, say, this central repository that sort of documents all the transactions in a visible and transparent way. Um, you still have to have confidence in the in the in the unchanged identity of the device, or the blockchain's useless, right? If you can spoof the device's identity, then it looks great in blockchain, but it's still bad news yep. um, because it was improperly done. Yeah, but you got um, a solid recording of it though, so. <laughs> you knew the bad uh, thing so happened. You, no, you don't know who no it was. visibility in the yeah. blockchain raid right. that it was the wrong device or that the device was successfully spoofed um, and delivered bad identity. Yeah, um, we're seeing we're seeing chips we're seeing chips data. that are like one-time use chipsets that uh, companies are making now where they have like a chemical release and it breaks and it creates a key pair. The 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 private key is kept only on uh -huh. that chip, right? So. But so early on, wow. uh, but I wouldn't be surprised well, to start say, to see this. The, so this is single use. In other words, you yep. can use it once, or yep. if you attempt to manipulate it, it it uh, self destructs. It, both. <laughs> so finance mm -hmm. companies are using. They've been using these in ATMs for a while, and then they, so the, the basically when you access the chip, the one time you enable it, the chip it creates the key pair, and so it, that private key mm -hmm. never leaves that chip. But it's also embedded in a fluid uh, or in a. Uh, substance that if it's compromised it basically dissolves it's like acid yeah in so. other words if you try to remove the device or, yeah. or um, tamper with it is it phys physical access or, yeah. or electronic tampering physical physical yeah that makes more sense so um, interesting yeah so we had a bunch of questions come in I think they got sent privately to me so you probably can't see them um, and uh, okay. we're, we're bumping up against time for devices nobody asked for, but I wanted to throw one of them in there because I got about five that came in <laughs> in the last minute oh. or two. Well, go you know what we'll it. do is we'll do a follow-up, and we'll, we'll take this into the podcast, so go ahead. Okay, yeah, so, so one of the ones here is how do you avoid clinicians being overloaded by data coming from IoT devices, and, and how do you ensure that they're only uh, getting what matters to them? Oh, good question. Um... So that's really a uh, an employee experience design question. Um, yeah, because if you just like <laughs> hook up clinicians to the raw data feeds, I mean, these sensors are crazy things that can read 60 times a second or something nuts, right? So um, this is all about designing the application to um, tailor it to the use. So you don't show people raw sensor readings, you show them trends, um, you know, or you don't even bother them with standard readings, you only intervene for, you know, things that seem out of whack. Uh, so this is all a, a software engineering and, and user interface question um, around uh, fundamentally the workflow of the person and what's sort of the most appropriate thing that will uh, help them uh, complete their job. And so what I'm seeing here is the premium that will now is, is now placed on, you know, actual uh, experience design. And are you familiar with the idea of journey mapping as well as um, experience design? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. we're a yep. big design thinking shop. Yep. <laughs> cool. So those principles are just going to become so much more important, and I think we're all going to become much less tolerant of, you know. Uh, people who have the technical ability to dump a lot of data or put up simple things, but who are not using those design skills to actually think 
through and make it work. And so to that end, it becomes even more important to say, you know, have architects who think about how to uh, create, uh, and that's, you know, technology architects, who think about how to create uh, really flexible um, infrastructure so that then the designers can come along and design things that are appropriate to fit. Um, so uh, all this is in the eye of the beholder. So there, there isn't a generic answer for how do we make sure clinicians aren't buried, because in fact what it requires is the sophistication of, of Kaiser um, and other organizations to recognize who needs what and how that's evolving, because it changes over time as well. Yeah, good, good answer on that. That was really, that, that was good. Uh, so thank you. Let's go ahead and move into the next segment, which is actually a really popular one with uh, those who've been on the call before, which is IoT devices that nobody asked for. And there, there really is a whole ton of them out there, unfortunately, and it's kind of a a, a shining uh, poster child for bad product design. Please tell me we have another Bluetooth toaster. <laughs> please, please, <laughs> because we had two of them already. Well, there can, can only be so many of those. <laughs> that last one was pretty good. So, so Frank, you'd sent us a list of of a good number of ones out there. Uh, do you want to talk sure. about just like one or two of them? Which ones were your favorite? <laughs> well, the happy fork is, is really easy to make fun of. <laughs> um, uh, and I was, I was intrigued you guys hadn't found that one yet. And so for those of you listening, it's H-A-P-I fork. Um, and uh, it counts the pace and frequency with which you lift the fork. Um, and it's somehow trying to get in your head and slow down the speed at with which you eat. Um, but it does not have any fancy sensors that knows what's on the fork. Um, so it, um, and the, the company that makes it has expanded into a bunch of other devices, but um, uh, the Happy Fork is still out there and it's still puzzling me. Well, okay, we'll get this straight here. So the Happy Fork, it's for, uh, it it has like an accelerometer in it must right or something right. and it does it it measures yeah. like how many times you put the fork in your mouth yeah it's keeping track of yeah. how how much is on the fork and how often you're bringing oh it's the got fork a weight thing to how much yeah oh so, man well, let's see I actually don't know if it's got uh, I'm looking at the details of it I have not tried this thing. So like, um, well, okay, but so is the problem really the fork or your elbow, right? Like, <laughs> like there should be like a counter on your elbow, like stop putting that in your mouth. <laughs> it's like, a, like the fork just enables you to grab the food. They should be like, it should be something that's. I don't. There's a term for it in Six Sigma. I forget what it is. It's not pokey yolk, but it's just like prevent like your arm from moving towards your mouth, right? Maybe that's what it should yeah, do. Yeah, it's um, it's doing fork servings per minute and intervals between. <laughs> Yeah, you know, if, if tracking oh. that sort of thing in real time is something that you're really interested in, you probably have bigger fish and, to fry. Yeah, I mean, and, my, my, my chart and, would be like a hockey stick, right? It would just be like... How long, right, how long it took to eat your meal. Now, my children already tell me that I eat slower than them, so I'm not sure what else the Happy Fork's going to tell me. Is this going to validate that? <laughs> I wonder if it has a microphone or like a, a speaker on it, like berates you as I you're do doing know. it. Like, don't, don't, don't do it. Don't stick that in your mouth. <laughs> I think I could build a better one of those. I'm pretty sure I can. It would just be like give it's got some coaching. capacitive detection thing going on too. So it's got to have an accelerometer, yeah. and it's got some capacitive detection. Maybe that there's food on the fork. I'm not sure. I, and it comes, by the way, in with blue, black, or white trim on the otherwise metal-looking fork. Oh, mm. 
It should. If, I still think. I still think the coaching would be good. Like having adding coaching. That's a new thing for like uh, for uh, IoT devices in in, in health in or, um, personal health. Like personal health, right? Is like coaching, right? Like yeah. to, to tell you that should be a great coaching moment right now. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. got like start starch uh, sensors on. It's like, oh, that's pasta. Don't 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 do it. Don't stick it in your mouth. I, I think we could. Well, I haven't do seen that. anything that actually senses the the nutrition in the food. But did you all hear about the vessel? Now, this is making fun of a, a what looks like a dead product, but V E S S Y L. No. No. What's that? So, so the vessel claimed that when you poured a drink in your glass, um, it would be able to tell you the n- nutritional. Um, value and quality of what you were drinking, as well as tracking how much you drank. I just want the alcohol content. That's easy. I just, you know, just tell me the alcohol content. The, the vessel was announced with great fanfare several years ago, but the, the Twitter account and the website, everything seems to have gone dark, but it's still sitting there. And they, they backpedaled to do a device that would just track how much water you drank. Um, and they may have actually shipped some of those, but they never succeeded in shipping the device that would actually measure, you know, the 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 ingredients and the safety of what you were consuming. Oh my goodness! Wow. So that's that's two. Now, did you have anything else? I didn't even put that one in there because see that one's cheating. <laughs> that product hasn't shipped. It's not out there. Oh, it's a Kickstarter um, or something at one point, probably. I'm sure. Yeah, something like that. So, yeah. was there another one on the list that you wanted to do? Well, uh, you know, it's funny because you mentioned the the fork one. It, that could go right. Right along. The last one we had was the what was that one? Smalt. It was a Bluetooth salt shaker. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we there just... is another IoT salt shaker that actually attempts to track what you um, eat. So uh, that one's actually attempting to capture we'll your to... sodium intake. All right, we'll have to track but, that one down. Yeah, that one um, is different than the Smalt. The Smalt one I didn't. Um, uh, had not seen. So well, you guys, sorry, uh, we did that on our last episode. It was uh, it was a mood mood thing. But um, well, if you did find another one. Uh, you may have heard this one since we're talking about food items. Uh, cork. Mm. It's uh, yeah. The cork. Tell me about the cork. Sure. So so cork basically it's it's this micro Bluetooth speaker that sits on top of an empty beer or alcohol oh. bottle and it amplifies the sound. It uses the bottle as so you can be more noxious. Speaker. I finished my bottle of wine. Let's make some more noise. <laughs> so I mean, th- this <laughs> is basically put a cork in it. <laughs> This is basically the high-tech equivalent of those rubber megaphone accessories that you get at, like, you know, a 99-cent store. Oh, wow. What is with all these manufacturers? Like, that, is that the only thing they can get from China that's cheap? It's like a Bluetooth speaker, and they yeah. put it on, I, I, like... <laughs> Oh and my what's, goodness! What's really funny about it is they have a special attachment that fits perfectly on those Starbucks bottled drinks that you can get at like Target or different grocery stores. So uh, at least they seem to know who their target audience is. It's right? like the the frappuccinos. That yeah, the frappuccino attachment. Oh my goodness! Well, I guess you are reusing. Well, it's it's kind of like recycling, right? Because yeah. you're using the bottle. Hey, these, the, look, the cork speaker guys collected twenty thousand dollars. Did, well, no. they hit their target. Yeah, and if you read the fine, is that on Kickstarter? Because if you read the fine print, they're not actually obligated to deliver any product. So you, they actually could just leave with that twenty thousand dollars. Oh, I'm no, so going to make some more money now. But did, but did you see the Cube Smart trash can that also failed to uh, meet its goal? No, that one was pitiful. Okay. Um, so Cube, where was it? They were trying to get two hundred forty thousand euros, and they only got thirty six hundred. They only got sorry six hundred. Oh my goodness! And so, what does it do? What does it do? What is it say? Like Q U B E, world's first smart trash can. Um, it uh, warns you if your trash smells bad. 
<laughs> it's got a smell sensor on it. Oh, okay. I didn't see that. At the same. Um, anyway, we are... So, Frank, thank you so much. You're welcome. With, uh, I mean, is there anything you, you want to uh, plug for Forrester before we end? Ah, well, I... <laughs> Um, we help, uh, you know, leaders at any place, not just uh, Kaiser, sort of understand and evolve with technology. So um, this is, the, I mean, we do sort of more formal things uh, to, to help our clients like the informal stuff uh, that we did today. So um, you have seen some uh, of the, it's the, the research decks. we write and then private consulting and then we do public speaking. So. Um, together, we basically help people deal with these really uh, interesting and complicated technology and business puzzles um, that all of us are dealing with all the time. All right. So, um, Kevin, what is our giveaway today? What are we doing? All right. So today we're giving away a Wemo Mini Smart Plug. So this is a connected home device. We actually use a lot here in the uh, Things Lab. Can, can we just get the smart trash can and give that away? <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. All right, all right, no, no, okay, so sure. the Wemo, Wemo plug, all right. Yeah, so what's neat about it is it lets you have like a smart on-off capability that you could use on anything that plugs into a wall. So can you I hook it to like Alexa or something like that? Can I... Yeah, so it is Alexa enabled, so you can voice activate it. And basically it turns, it, it regulates the power from your wall socket. So it's like, a, it's like a power adapter that you plug into the wall and then you can plug something into it. And then it, you can turn this adapter on and off with your smartphone. You could use it with your voice. And so that way you could have that dumb lamp that you bought at Walmart for 20 bucks. Or that fan. Connected. Or fan. It's hot out right or now. Or a fan. People are buying yeah. lots of fans. How lazy have we become? <laughs> really? <laughs> so, so you could voice activate like a dumb, like a fan. Anything. Anything okay. that plugs into a wall, it can be voice activated ah, with this. All right. All right. Well, we have gotten seriously lazy. All right. We got... Your Echo Dot lost its connection. Oh, and it's not talking. We have to not say Alexa in this room. That has to. That's one of those things we have to do. That's like the name that shall not be said. We could. We'll just say Alexa like three times fast, and like everybody's home things are going to start going. Uh, what? Uh, we should unplug that next time. Um, so, who do we have? Shane Price. Shane Price, are you still on? If you are, send a message. Send a message in the, in the chat, and we will send you a couple of Wemos. He's on. He's on? All right. Oh, good job, Shane. Congratulations. Frank, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you for joining. You're Kevin, welcome. you got anything else you want to add before we uh, say goodbye? Kevin, anything else? Oh, me? Yeah. Uh, just that there's going to be a shortened version of this available as a podcast in a few days, and all the emails we'll send back and forth. We'll have a subscribe and unsubscribe link at the bottom. Oh, uh, yes. You can subscribe at our CTO website, which we have linked also in our emails. Um, you can also feel free to act to email Dave Wright at kp.org or Kevin Ferris at kp.org, and we'll happily get your colleagues signed up. Ah, what about oh, we gotta get send me some more IoT devices that nobody asked for. That too. If you know of any dumb IoT devices or hilariously <laughs> bad IoT devices, please send them our way. We're really looking forward to the Christmas season to see what comes. Oh out. yeah! <laughs> All right, thanks guys. Have a good day. Take care. Bye. Bye.